welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we bring you excerpts from Black Women Bringing It All Back Home, a discussion series organized by Black Women Radicals. Black Women Radicals is a Black feminist advocacy organization dedicated to uplifting Black women and gender expansive people's radical political activism. They describe themselves as being, quote, rooted in intersectional and transnational feminism and womanisms. They say they are committed to empowering black women and gender expansive activists and centering their political, intellectual, and cultural contributions to the field of black politics across time, space, and place in Africa and in the African diaspora. You will hear organizers of Black Women Radicals in conversation with me about my community volunteer work campaigning for justice from the serial murders of Black women in South Los Angeles to Haiti to my work helping to build an independent global grassroots women's and anti-racist network as well as my commitment to independent media. Many of you hear me on the radio and may or may not know of my background of community activism, so here goes. We live in a global world, we're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Today marks a second year anniversary of the deadly January 6th attack on Congress when Donald Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, some chanting hang Mike Pence, his vice president, others looking for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, some waving Nazi or Confederate flags and yelling racist slurs at Capitol Police of color, many attacking police officers. It was an effort to overturn Joe Biden's presidential election win after Trump fall claimed it was stolen from him. Since then, hundreds have been convicted of crimes for the attack, including a founder of the Oath Keepers who faces decades in prison for espionage charges. High-ranking members of the Proud Boys are about to go to trial for their role. Jury selection has been underway. Today, President Joe Biden will commemorate the Capitol attack by awarding the nation's second-highest civilian awards to 12 individuals involved in defending the Capitol that day and stopping Trump's efforts to under undermine democracy, including a Republican lawmaker, Arizona's Rusty Bowers. He testified before the January 6th committee that he refused Donald Trump's personal request to help him overturn the election results by giving Arizona's 11 electoral college votes that Biden won to Trump instead. Bowers refused, citing it was against his oath of office to do so. Biden is also recognizing Michigan's Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, election workers Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shea Moss, and several law enforcement officers, including posthumously to Brian Sicknick, who died, and former officer Michael Fanone. Fanone was among a group of veterans to rally outside Congress yesterday ahead of the anniversary. Ellie Prickett Morgan has more. 
Officer Fanon penned a letter now signed by over a thousand members of law enforcement and supporters calling on Republicans to condemn political violence. Fanon is also a member of Courage for America, a new organization speaking out against political extremism and violence. It denounces MAGA Republicans in Congress for promoting conspiracy theories, sham investigations, and election lies to hold on to power. The worst part is that our elected leaders allowed this to happen. And yet this week, people who encouraged and even attended the insurrection are now taking their places as leaders in the new House majority. People like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said insurrectionists would have won on January 6th if she had been involved. Or Representative Matt Gates, who encouraged voters to arm themselves at the polls. The implications of political extremism infecting the American government are playing out in real time with the chaos in the House of Representatives, where the GOP is incapable of securing a new House Speaker despite having the majority. But veterans like Fanon are warning that until we combat the forces of right-wing radicalization, this chaos is just beginning. I'm Ellie Prickett-Morgan. Lawmakers at the House of Representatives will convene for another attempt to select a leader as a group of some 20 hardline Republicans continue holding the chamber hostage over California Republican Kevin McCarthy's bid to lead the GOP. After 11 rounds of voting, Congress adjourned last night without selecting a House Speaker for a third straight day. The House cannot function without a leader. No laws can be voted on. No members can be sworn in. The contours of a deal that could make McCarthy House Speaker have begun to emerge. He's determined to win over enough fellow Republicans and has some 200 votes but needs 218. McCarthy's offered conservative holdouts rule changes to give them more power to shape legislation and to boot him from office. Debate begins today. Yesterday, Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries called on Republicans to get it together. So we can have the back of the American people. That's what we were elected to do. That is what Congress should be doing in the face of a global pandemic that continues to be with us. In the face of inflationary pressure all across the land and throughout the world. And in the face of a dangerous conflict in Europe, the biggest conflict since World War II. These are serious issues that require the attention of the United States House of Representatives. It's time for the Republicans to get their act together. Hakeem Jeffries. Meanwhile, the U.S., Germany, and France are sending more military aid to Ukraine. The latest U.S. aid totals $2.85 billion and provides 50 Bradleys. They're fighting vehicle tanks to Ukraine. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were today's news headlines. We will now go to excerpts from Black Women Radicals. Discussion entitled Black Women Bringing It All Back Home, which, by the way, they named after my book with the same title. Hi, everyone. Thank y'all so much for joining us. We're so excited for the fifth installment of the Radical Black Women series and getting to honor and have a discussion with Margaret Prescott. My name is Jamie Swift, and I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the executive director 
of the Radical Black Women, a Black feminist advocacy organization dedicated to uplifting and centering Black women and gender expansive people's activism in Africa and the African diaspora. I'm so happy that y'all are here today for the fifth installment of the Radical Black Women series. So the Radical Black Women series is a collaboration between Black women radicals, the Claudia Jones School for Political Education, and the Paul Robeson House and Museum. And its purpose is to pay homage to historical and contemporary radical leftist Black women. I'm joined by Dante O'Hara, a lead organizer with the Claudia Jones School, and Christopher Rogers, program director of the Paul Robeson House and Museum. Margaret Prescott is an activist, author, journalist, and radio host. She is the co-founder of Black Women for Wages for Housework, coordinator of Women of Color in the Global Women's Strike, and joint coordinator of the Care Income Now campaign. She is on the board of the National Welfare Rights Union. Prescott was born in Barbados and immigrated to the U.S. in 1962 as a teenager. Within her first two weeks of moving to the U.S., she was on a picket line protesting against a medical center in Brooklyn that would not employ Black people. In the early 1970s, Prescott started to focus her activism on initiatives that look to improve the welfare of mothers. She launched the International Black Women for Wages for Housework program with Wilmette Brown in 1975. In 1980, she wrote Black Women, Bringing It All Back Home, one of the first books that explored the relationship between women, immigration, and race, which is the, why the title of our event today is named after her book. In 1986, Prescott founded the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, which was established in response to the murder of 11 women in South Los Angeles. She is presently the host and executive producer of the Sojourner Truth radio show, which is broadcast by KPFK and syndicated by radio stations WPFW Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City, named after the abolitionist and women's rights activist Sojourner Truth. Thank you so much. And I really want to thank the Black Radical Women and the Claudia Jones School for Political Education, the Paul Robeson House and Museum. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Thank you so much for pulling this together. We really want to focus on your sojourn into organizing and activism. And so you were born in Barbados, right, and immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager. How much has the Caribbean shaped and continued to shape your political consciousness? It's my roots and my village, which is Lodge Road, in a part of Barbados called Christchurch, is very much a touchstone uh, for me. And it was really critical to, I think, in a lot of ways to what I'm doing now. Barbados is a small island and we have the distinction of being the only place in the world that was ruled by England, the colonial power for over 300 years. Some of you might have known that only recently in November of last year, we broke with the queen and are now officially a republic. And now there's a lot of discussion going on in other parts of the Caribbean, Jamaica and some of the other islands following suit. But the slavery in Barbados was extremely brutal. The island, we have no mountains, we're flat, we're a coral island, we're not a mountaintop. So it meant people enslaved had nowhere to run but into the sea. Indeed, Barbados sent some of the slave masters to the United States to train people in how to 
torture slaves. There was nowhere for us to run but into the sea. And in the village that I grew up, just really not that long ago, there was a discovery of what is now known to be the largest slave cemetery in the whole of the Americas, over 600 men, women, and children. And of course, growing up, we had no idea. You know, you're running around and you're playing cricket and whatever. And, you know, you have no idea that you are on, on sacred ground. I happen to think that the entire island actually is sacred ground. There was such a huge turnover in people who were enslaved. And of course, then with the Cromwell basically doing ethnic cleansing of the Irish out of Ireland, there's also an Irish connection with Barbados, including in my own family, my grandfather's mother with that connection who came in as indentured servants. But I think specifically to the work that I'm doing now, you know, I grew up in a small village. We grew up next to a cane field. We watched not only the people working in the fields from sunup to sundown and, you know, remaining impoverished. Work and wealth were not equated. Also, the women specifically in the village, women were always working, taking care of the children, taking care of, of the home, uh, cooking. Um, we grew up with no running water and electricity. So that just intensified the amount of caregiving work one had to do to take care of the family. And perhaps it was because of the lack of resources, because of the lack of poverty, we lived in very much a communal way. I've heard that that is also part of the experience of people growing up in the U.S. South, in Black communities, and perhaps other communities in the South. We shared what little that we had, and I think that that really helped to ground me in a much more collective approach as opposed to this kind of rampant individualism that we see and I saw and had to learn the hard way when we immigrated from Barbados to the U.S. And, uh, you know, also I think that in the schooling that I had, I, I went to Girls Foundation School, my sister and I, it was a girls school then, it's now uh, boys and girls, so, so to speak, and my brother went to the Boys Foundation School. But one thing I did want to note is that in that schooling, you know, we were actually treated like human beings and as people with some dignity. And that was not the experience when I came to Brooklyn and went to Prospect Heights High School at the time. There were very, very few Caribbean people living in the community. This was in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. And that school I went to, both my sister and I were subject to the most horrific racist comments, teachers calling us monkey chasers in the classroom. Do you live in trees? You have tails. I mean, you know, just that kind of stuff, making fun of your accent. This wasn't our experience in our island that we came from. We were impoverished, but we lived, you know, with some dignity. The work that I then got into, particularly the work around wages for housework and valuing caregiving work. I also grew up in a place where all of us survived by having what we called a kitchen garden. My aunties up in my father's village, they were subsistence farmers. Everybody used natural farming. Nobody knew anything about any of the sprays and fertilizers that they're doing now. So I grew up gratefully with that as well. And so all of that experience, I think, helped to inform me with the work that I'm doing now. My mom 
and my dad, I have to say, they gave us a really great foundation in these kinds of values. My father was known throughout the village when we had the hurricane in 1955. He was up before anyone going around the village, even before protecting our home, making sure that all the villagers who didn't have any communication to know that a hurricane was on the way was there. And of course, my mom with the mother's union in her church and all of the work that she did mothering and taking care of so many of the villagers. You know, within your first two weeks of moving to the United States, you were on the picket line <laughs> the medical center in Brooklyn that would not employ Black people. Was that a right. moment, one of your, your first forays in activism? Or could you Well, I think in the United States, it likely was. And certainly, we were fortunate in the after coming to the United States that my sister and I had to go live with my aunt, my aunt Mill. The family actually was broken up because we got to the airport and found that our housing had fallen through. And my mom, my sister and my brother were taken in by my grandmother and another aunt and my sister and I for the first time, separated from our mother and our brother is sent to live in Brooklyn. But Aunt Mill, who was a school teacher at PS 161 in Brooklyn, she was active in CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. And Aunt Mill's father, which would be my mother's stepfather, my mother had a, a different dad, he was a Garveyite. And she grew up in that kind of household. So she was very involved in the early days of the civil rights movement. And it was really because of her that we just met with her every day down to Downstate Medical Center where 700 Black people were arrested that summer doing civil disobedience. My sister and I could not be arrested because we would be deported as immigrants. So we would, when they gave the order to arrest, we were blocking cement trucks. We stayed there long enough for the cement to harden. They would arrest people. Then my sister and I had our brown paper bag. We would take a break and have lunch, eat a sandwich, and then we'd start yet another round. So I'm really grateful Aunt Mill is no longer with us. I'm grateful that that was the household that we went into, the Black church in Brooklyn. Several of them at that time were major centers for organizing and the civil rights movement. So that was a a very, very early training that I had. In 1980, you wrote Black Women Bringing It All Home one of the first books that explored the relationship between women, immigration, and race. What led you to write this book? Oftentimes, the contributions, livelihoods, and plights of Black migrants, especially Black women migrants, are overlooked in movement building. Was your book a response to this erasure? In a lot of ways, yes. You know, when that book came out, I had already co-founded Black Women for Wages for Housework and had had the experience working, the training that I had by really welfare mothers in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, then the work that I did at the Queens College, the City University of New York, in the SEEK program where we fought for the right of welfare mothers to be able to have access to a four-year university without their welfare grants being cut, without their book money being cut. We won that fight, by the way, to establish a precedent in the United States. We did that in New York. And then the beginning of the United Nations Conference for Women, there was a U.S. version in 1977 that took place in Houston, Texas. And the lead up for 
organizing uh, for that, along with Beulah Sanders, the late great Beulah Sanders, who was a president of the National Welfare Rights Organization, Pauline Hayes, with the American Indian Movement, and myself, we wound up being, that's a whole fight in and of itself, how we got to be delegates from New York State, but we did. And we worked along with Johnny Tillman, another great uh, welfare rights um, leader, who, by the way, in 1965, had said she would resolve the problem of welfare by paying a living wage for mothers for the work that they do. Very, very early, a Black woman out of Watts, okay, putting, putting that demand forward. So those of us who went on in Wages for Housework campaign were really very much building, you know, on that legacy of women's movement, a black and brown led women's movement, by the way. But what had not happened, Jamie, what had not happened is I hadn't really talked about why I was in all of this. What was my connection as an immigrant? And all of you know, the Wages for Housework campaign is global, founded by Selma James. It's the 50th anniversary right now. And Selma James had stood with us, by the way, when we had to deal with some racism in the New York Wages for Housework Committee, stood and supported us as as Black women in all of the work that we did. And we went to London to work with Selma and to work with women in the campaign there. The widow, CLR James, she's been grounded in anti-racism, lived in the Caribbean region. She lived in Barbados also, as well as Trinidad when CLR and she were involved in the movement for federation of what was then called the West Indies. So um, in terms of helping me to find my voice, and speak my story in my own name. She really encouraged me to talk about the experience of immigration because I was telling her some of the stories and they, the women in London organized a meeting. And at that meeting, I gave a speech about my experience as a black woman immigrant. And that speech is what became black women bringing it all back home. And it did set a precedent. It was the first, as you mentioned, of its kind talking about immigration from a black woman's experience. And in it, just honestly making the case that we've come to collect this idea that you know we're coming and we're draining resources from England or, or from the United States. It's just so outrageous because it is the work that we do in the global South, in the Caribbean, in Latin America, from, on the continent, Asia, the places that we immigrate from that help to create the wealth and the lifestyle that the West is used to. But then when we immigrate, we're treated as though we're charity cases. So I, in the book, I said, look, we didn't come here for the weather. Anybody knows how the Caribbean weather? We certainly didn't come from the fruit, the mangoes, the fresh fish, all of that kind of stuff. We left for other reasons to immigrate to the US or to the UK. And we feel, I certainly feel as though I have every right to be here. And we're not outsiders. We are, you know, part of what created the wealth and we're here to collect. You know, when I was in, I think my first trip to London and did a little tourist stuff and we went into Bucket. Palace. And I signed that damn visitor's book they have in there and said, I want my money and and signed Margaret Prescott from Barbados. And if you do some research, you'll see the enormous wealth 
um, that Barbados created for the UK, but also for the academies for Harvard University and Brown and William and Mary and Rutgers, etc. A lot of them made their way and got enormous amount of money from Barbados in particular, but the slave trade generally. So that's really how that book came about. And firstly, how did you connect with Wilmette or meet and co-found this program? And secondly, what was the impetus that led you to initiate this program? Black Women for Wages for Housework, an organization, right? (laughs) As an autonomous network of Black women, part of the Wages for Housework campaign. Will Matt and I met at Queens College when we both were working in the SEEK program, the very program that I mentioned early, where we did some organizing. By then, we had co-founded Black Women for Wages for Housework, but I knew that I wanted to do political work. I wanted to change the world, you know, and die book, The Point is to Change the World. I had kind of figured that out really early on, but didn't quite know where I fit in it or how to go about it. I had gone to several study groups, of course. I had gone to listen to CLR James speak when he came into to New York. I'm a great admirer of his work. Those of you who haven't read Black Jacobins, I really suggest it about the great Haitian revolution. And I went to various study groups. I was in one, actually, that Maurice Bishop from Canada used to come down. It was a group of Caribbean people, you know, finding our way in things. And then there was a group, a market. Marxist study group. I couldn't quite follow the whole thing. And also I didn't see myself. I didn't see my grandmother Lee up in Britain's village in St. Philip. I didn't see the women that I had left in my island and what was being discussed. Uh, and I felt that it, I, I, you know, I, I just didn't connect um, with, a, with, with a lot of it. And so when um, Wilmette and I met, and she had recently returned from South Africa. She was in the Black Panther Party in the Bay Area, and then went to the continent to work with African liberation movements there. And we met and we ran into information on wages for housework. And uh, I, immediately I kind of connected with the training I had by welfare mothers, but also my experience in the island. And so that's how we met. But the reason we just didn't go and join, for example, the New York Committee, Wages Housework Committee, which we then broke with on the question of race, actually, is that we wanted to organize as Black women. We came out of the civil rights movement, Will met more in the militant Black movement, and we wanted to organize as Black women, you know, but we weren't separatists. And the reason for that is that we had big ideas. We actually wanted to change the world. We knew that in our own specific corner, only as Black women, we couldn't do it on our own. So we needed to find a way to work across race and to work across sector. And the Wages for Housework campaign from its start was also global, right? And that it had to be a global movement. So we felt, and certainly I know I personally did, that the way that I was going to get involved in this movement, the Wages for Housework movement, to to change prioritizing the caring of people and the environment was going to be from an autonomous base of Black women. We now, Black Women for Wages for Housework, coordinate women of color in the global women's strike. But our impetus was to recognize our autonomy from an autonomous base, 
to do the work across race and across sector. And I think that's really an important question because there's a lot of confusion I find in the movement today, uh, confusing autonomy and separatism or feeling that you need no autonomy at all in order to, you know, to do the kind of organizing that we must do. But I find that autonomy is also a great unifier and it allows the voices of those who are most impacted to be able to speak in our own names, to put forward our demands, to put forward our strategies and tactics. And when we do that, we actually change. I mean, Black Women for Wages for Housework, we had a tremendous impact on the Wages for Housework campaign as a whole in terms of what the campaign did and what the campaign represented. Will Metz, Black Women of the Peace Movement, which was published, also the environmental movement, her Black Ghetto Ecology. I think those are things that are, are worth looking at and worth revisiting and looking at the work that we did as Black Women for Wages for Housework. And also on the point of erasure, refusing to be erased. You know, there are people running around now who are claiming that the Wages for Housework campaign ended in 1977 when they left. These are white women, okay? A lot of them are academics. And if you look at what they're putting out, they even have some archives because they've had the time to write books, etc. You're not going to find Black women in there. You're not going to find Black women for Wages for Housework in there. That's not something you could tell that we're too happy about, Right. So the whole issue of erasure of the history and contributions of black women, of women of color, of indigenous women, we're just not tolerating. And we are finding our voice and speaking in our own name. It really is amazing. And black women for wages for housework. We're not quite at 50 yet because we formed as black women. This was after the campaign began in, in 1972. But we had a lot to contribute uh, very, very early on uh, to it. And it's interesting to see some of the discussion uh, that has happened because, as you said, we have done way more than we could even discuss today. But on that issue of autonomy, I find that this is very much connected with how a certain uh, early wing, the ones who left in 77, talk about wages for housework as more, you know, it's this kind of theory, right? As opposed to the practical campaigning that we have done and the autonomous organizations that have developed. I mean, the first autonomous organization actually was Wages Do Lesbians. Um, there was a group in Canada as well as the UK, Black Women for Wages for Housework. Shortly thereafter, the sex workers started organizing and formed the English Collective of Prostitutes. And then that US Prostitutes Collective actually grew out of a group of Black sex workers in New York called NYP, New York Prostitutes Collective. And in the 1980 or so, I think it went national and became U.S. Prostitutes Collective. And there are women with visible and invisible disabilities. We also work with men. We don't say, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with men. We work with men. They work with us as part of Payday Men's Network. So a lot of people have some difficulty saying, well, what do all those different organizations have to do with wages for housework? because they don't get autonomy. They don't get that women with visible and invisible disabilities are speaking in their own name and putting forward their demands and how their situation connects with the demand for money 
for caregiving of people and the environment and thus all of the other organizations as well. The sex worker organizations empower in Thailand, which is a huge network in Thailand of the, the women in, in Thailand that are, are working, uh, protesting the mines, offering support for women, including tribal women fleeing in Myanmar where there's a, a brutal dictatorship happening. You know, so to understand that these are voices speaking in their own name. And what holds us all together is that we do want what we're calling now a care income. We do want the trillions, not billions or millions, the trillions of dollars that our work creates just our unwaged work alone. I'm not even talking about the low wage stuff. I'm just talking about the unpaid work that we do in the home, we do in the community, and we do in the land. It is trillions of dollars to the economy of this world, but we are not getting it back in our communities to care for ourselves, to care for our elders, to care for our children, to care for the land. But instead, a lot of money going into war, into destabilizing uh, governments, whether it's uh, undermining uh, Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela, the Bolivarian Revolution, President Aristide, and the first democratically elected president of Haiti. Our money is being, the wealth that we created is being misused, okay? And we want to reclaim it. Every sector that we are, whether it's domestic workers in Lima, Peru, or the tribal women in, um, in, in, in Thailand, or the trans women uh, that are part of, of our network uh, working with, with Queer Strikes. So we, we are all together. And it, it, it is the growth of the 50 years and how we have found expression that we haven't remained static that we have grown with the times. And as people come into our, um, come into the network, we start with who they are. So if you know, you're somebody and you got a son that's been in, in prison or you got a brother like our sister tree in, in, in Pennsylvania, um, you know, we, we are involved and we're part of that work. We support each other and it strengthens and it builds the campaign. So I think it, it really comes from a lack of understanding what autonomy actually means to dismiss, say, well, y'all just seem to be like, y'all are just a bunch of different organizations, right? And, and we are autonomous organizations, but they don't see the unity within autonomy and what we have been able to build and the success that we have built with the UN um, resolution that we won, that governments agreed to after a lot of fight, pushback from the United States to measure and value unwaged work in the home, on the land, in the community. Trinidad and Tobago was one of the first ones to start moving on it. Um, um, Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela, et cetera. And now the United Nations has declared it as one of its uh, sustainable development goals. Well, guess where the hell that came from? Talk about erasure of grassroots women putting this issue on the global uh, on the global agenda. So we are marking our 50 years. We have begun um, more consistently. We have now archived a lot of the first 10 years. We haven't finished that yet. We're going into the next 20 years. There's a, an event coming up, I know, in London for that in Philadelphia, our women's center there. We're going to have a physical archive that's located there. And again, we want to encourage any of you out there that have that experience who want to help us who want to, um, you know, to make sure that this grassroots movement is not erased 
uh, starting with the black women and the women of color, but not only, um, we welcome that. So we are, we're thrilled and delighted. And you know what? <laughs> when I look at the body of work, I just can't believe how much we have done. I mean, it's an amazing amount of work. And I really hope that that history and those voices are not lost and we have to do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen. How has journalism been a tool of resistance for you? We're really proud of the work we've done on Sojourner Truth. We're now one of the nationally syndicated shows on Pacifica Radio. We're actually heard in about somewhere between 35 and 40 cities around the United States, including some really small rural areas like Carbondale in southern Illinois, <laughs> little towns in Oregon, et cetera. So the kind of radical voices and analysis that we do on Sojourner Truth are heard widely and we're also worldwide on SoundCloud and I'm shocked when I get the statistics and see that people in Sweden are listening to it, people in Germany, in Japan and Australia, South Africa. I'm like, what? You know, even in countries that you think people don't speak English. But, you know, what we try to do, we're a small team. There's myself, our present producers is Alicia Vargas and we really work hard to try to get underneath, underneath any story that we're covering. And I always say to the audience, we have to speak the truth to the youth. Come on in America. Ah. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. The saga continues. Come on in America. Cause that's the golden spin. A new revelation. Come on in America. This is Brother Cornell West, and you are listening to Sojourner Truth with host, my dear sister, Margaret Prescott. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you are on Facebook, you can look for us and like us on Facebook. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there, Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to the Caribbean region today. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at SoTrueRadio. Let us now return back to the last half of our coverage of the Black Women Radicals event where they were in conversation with me about my community volunteer campaigning work. But it's not only to speak the truth to the youth, we just have to speak the truth, period and really not try to cover it over, not to perpetuate the lie of this media impartiality. You know what? That is a falsity that helps to justify the media industrial complex so that the blanket propaganda that we see running across mainstream media, not only in relation to the Ukraine, because clearly what's happening there, the Ukrainians are being sacrificed for geopolitical plans of Russia, of the United States, et cetera. But, you know, it's really hard to figure out what the heck is going on and what is not being talked about, like all of the people being killed in, in Yemen, the, the double standard when it comes to Israel's relationship with the Palestinians. In Ireland, they just had a big victory in Ireland because science 
has now been elected and even more power than they had before. And they made a huge fight in Ireland in terms of dealing with the legacy, but not only the legacy of the reality of the England and its colonialism there. So we, we try to cover these issues. We're not just a black show, right? We really, cause we got something to say about anything that's happening, right? We do quite a lot of coverage of Haiti. I see Pierre Labossier is, is there from a founder of Haiti Action, uh, meaning so much, so much to all of us. And the Global Women's Strike, we have a working group on Haiti and we do cover Haiti a lot on the show. So to answer your question, I kind of got recruited into Pacific. I didn't quite go beating down the door for a job and I was doing a volunteer once a week show for a while. And then I was asked, to come on board to four shows a week. And we found that when that change happening, the listenership during that hour just kind of shot up. And I think that that speaks to the hunger that people have for the kind of coverage that we do. And look, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. We're not a scripted show. So it's not like I have a bunch of questions that I read and you know, there's some ooms and whatever, because you're, you're thinking as you're discussing with the guests, but we have found that the listeners aren't really put off by that. None of us have the answer, whether it's the media work that we're doing or whether it's the movement work that we're doing, but really it's having a conversation with each other. It's about bringing people together, putting voices on the air that you wouldn't ordinarily hear and really doing that work. So we hope that people, uh, listeners like yourself, we hope that you find it, uh, you find it useful. It, it really cuts into deeply into a lot of the time that I have for my other organizing work. So in a way, I feel like it's a contribution also of the women's networks that I've helped to build um, to alternative media and to Pacifica Radio in particular. You're really there for the cause of it. And that's really the driving force of it. So thank you. And Sojourner Truth was it was purposely named. Actually, Selma suggested that, and my and also my daughter. I have to lift my my daughter up. Her book. I'm so proud of her. The Disordered Cosmos just won the the Los Angeles Times Book Award in the area of science and technology. That's Chanda Prescott Weinstein. She's one of my sheroes. My daughter is. It's just great. It's a great coming together. I'm grateful to be able to. I'm grateful to be able to have that voice. And I hope that I find it, that people find it useful because the media industrial complex is part of the capitalist state apparatus. And we really have to see it as such and look for some other sources to find information. Thank you. Wow. Like, I feel like <laughs> I'm learning so much and it's like, you are just like, I'm absorbing it all. And especially as, Myself being a journalist, everything that you said resonated so much. Um, so thank you for all that. And the chat is just popping off, agreeing with you. Um, and I also want to mention that, uh, Margaret, we have a couple more questions for you, and then we're going to open it up for a Q&A discussion, right? So I see folks have already populated their questions. If you want to ask questions to Margaret and please soak in all this wisdom and information, right? please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen to ask your questions. 
Um, and thank you, Don thank you, Dante, so much for being here. I know you have to pop off soon, but we just really appreciate you and your organizing with the Claudia Jones School for Political Education. So thanks, Dante. Thank you so much, Dante. Let's stay in touch. And so for me, I mean, I'm all about advice and wisdom. And so my question for you is what advice would you give to organizers today since you, you literally continue to lead in all certain aspects and all various sectors. So what advice would you give to uh, organizers today? Right, well, I think the, the first thing and, and challenge, and this is particularly difficult in the United States where there is no welfare state, what little bit of resources people have to survive on is being constantly uh, chipped away Similarly, the thing is happening uh, in Europe as well. And so it's always the challenge about just basic survival, like keeping a roof over your head, as well as doing the organizing and community work that we must do. Because, you know, when you think things are bad and can't get any worse, well, guess what? They could. There's no guarantee that our movement will win. So if we don't do the work, we don't put in the work, you know, it, it, you know, anything could happen and there could be more, more suffering. So, uh, you know, I know for a lot of um, uh, young people, and there's been some reading about the um, NGO industrial complex, for example, you know, a lot of uh, young people who want to do good work and get involved in uh, an, an NGO. And I'll have to say the uh, our network, we, we have a category two NGO, the um, Women in, in Dialogue at, at the United Nations. It's not like having a non-governmental organization or it's entirely an educational charity, by the way. Um, it's not a campaigning organization, isn't useful. But we find that um, people try to, to, to merge that. And then what can happen is that your funder then starts to determine um, your, the issues that you take up, your tactics and your strategies, right? And that's a danger there. I mean, I've seen organizations that began as little grassroots organizations committed to the people, et cetera, really turn and become something else, right? Because your job and your income is very much dependent on it. And there's a way in which we have to be able to organize ourselves out of a job, if you know what I mean. If you're an anti-poverty organization, the thing is, is to end poverty. And if poverty is ended, then you wouldn't have a job to, you know, to end poverty. You know, as we do this series, it's all about recovering the legacies and histories and contributions of radical Black women globally that need to be, you know, highlighted and, and reprised for the world and for our movements. Who are some of the radical Black women that inspire you? Well, we heard of Aunt Mill. Oh, we my God. <laughs> my grandmother, my mother, my sister. Okay. Well, historically, obviously, Sojourner Truth. I mean, Harriet Tubman, that's, a, that's an easy one. My daughter actually ran a campaign. She was opposing the naming of this James Webb telescope, this new telescope they have. She said, that should be the call, the Harriet Tubman telescope. She was a scientist, right? Let's see, the great Ida B. Wells, of course. I can't bypass the women of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, including my cousin, by the way, Martha Prescott, Martha Prescott Nuna now, but Diane Nash. 
uh, Betty May Fikes, who joined the movement in Selma when she was 13 years old. Uh, Bernice Reagan uh, Johnson, who, um, the, you know, that, that great movement out of Georgia. Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Johnny Tillman, Beulah Sanders, of course, Toni Morrison, the great late and Daye out of Guyana. Again, her book, you got to get it. The point is to change the world. And the Black women victims, serial murder victims, there are about 200 Black women who are dead or missing and presumed dead as a result of about four or five serial murders operating in South LA. And most people in LA don't even know about it, much less the rest of the nation. I also want to lift up Mildred Attestead, the former first lady of, of Haiti, now heading the, along with our husband, the former president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, UNIFA, the Aristide Foundation, doing amazing work there. All of the grassroots women in the movement of Haiti, all of the women, Sarah and Chrissy and Tree and Barbara and Jackie and, you know, Sharon and Sabrina, all of the, the women, I know I'm, I'm missing some that are in our women's network, the women who are in the core of the Black Coalition fighting back serial murders. And I'm naming Black women now because there are a lot of other women that I could name, obviously. Susan Burton out of, um, of Los Angeles. And of course, my beloved daughter. I'm so proud of her, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. Thank you so much for the question. And it's been a great delight being with you. And I hope that this has been useful to you, to your series, and to those who really took the time kindly to join us online and, and are watching on YouTube. But you have no idea how invigorated I feel from this conversation. And I want to read some of the comments. I just would like to give thanks to you and the women who organized with you in Los Angeles. You applied pressure for Black women who were laboring in the underground economy and drug users in ways that I mostly have yet to see currently. Thank you for your care and your labor. We're all part of each other. We are our sister's keeper. And when we say their names, we also have to say the names of the women who are considered throwaway because the police refer to them as crackhead hoes, no humans involved. I mean... You know, nobody has stood with those women and we intend to stand with them and we intend to have a permanent memorial, a dignified memorial for them in a public space in Los Angeles. You could go to our website, rosesouthla.org to get information on it. But, you know, we can't we can't do that anymore. We can't say that some victims are worthy of support and others are not. So thank you for that. What has your experience been? How can, as researchers, how can we best support movements in terms of movement histories and bringing those things alive that is not just the past, but is present and its future? There has been a long and historic tension between grassroots movement and people who are quote unquote academics. And there are also people in the academy who have you know, who, who also connect and help to lift up uh, grassroots movements and voices. But that doesn't happen all that often. Often what happens is we find our movements reflected. Somebody will write a book and we'll see our movement reflected 
in ways that we wouldn't have put it forward in that way. So, hey, wait a minute, nobody asked us about that, right? So I think there has to be a lot more accountability on the part of the academic uh, community. I'm not one to, to say, look, I wanna throw academics under the bus. I know there, there's a lot of anger you know, around that. I really like to find a way to bring people together and to figure out a way that we could work and, and uh, support each other. Um, we know that, for example, uh, Robin Kelly, out of a historian out of, of UCLA, he is helping us now with one of his graduate students, making a student available to help, to help us with the work on the archives. This is really important because what the hell do I know about archiving? You know what I mean? There's I, some of the, and there are different parts of it. Some of the Black Coalition were, um, fighting back serial murders archive. Some of it is in the Southern California Library in Los Angeles, but it is only a small slice of that work. I can't tell you, I got boxes in my garage, okay? You know what I'm saying? It's like movement history that's right there that as a campaigner, you're busy, you're doing stuff, you just don't have the time. Next thing you know, you know, none of us are guaranteed to live forever. Next thing you know, you're not here and those voices are gone. So we really um, need that kind of help and support and accountability. There's a lot of research that we need to happen. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, numerical in terms of, of, of numbers uh, that we need, um, questions related to history, et cetera, that academics who are trained in research, who know this stuff, could really help us to do. We really need that, but it has to be, uh, it can't be from the top down. Right. It has to be that kind of um, that kind of collaboration and that kind of accountability and that kind of um, openness uh, to discussion. I'll just give one quick example. I mean, it's not an academic, but the film There's a film about some of the uh, section of one of the killers in the, the serial killers called Tales of the Grim Sleeper, done by a very fine filmmaker called Nick Broomfield. And when Nick first approached me about doing that, film, I don't want to have nothing to do with it. I'm like, you media people, you film people, it's all caricature, you know, you're just going to rip us off, whatever. And I literally chased the man away, but he was persistent. And in the end, we wound up um, working with him. The film, I think it's still on HBO, Cold Tales of the Grim Sleeper. You might want to take a, a look at it. But it was, you know, it, there was some clashing going on in there in terms of, you know, what messaging and, and, and how women were portrayed. At the end of it, I think he did a really good job in terms of being respectful, but I think it was that honest uh, back and forth. And also he's a, quite a talented filmmaker. He knew some things that I didn't know. <laughs> so I think it has to be that kind of interaction and interrelationship and respect for the grassroots and uh, getting our point of view and making sure that our story is told in the right way. And, um, and if you're collecting archives about our work, let us know. I just found out last week about two universities that have archives on our work. We had no bloody idea, okay? Well, we wanna get access to it, but this is part of the beef that we have with academics who have, some of whom have ripped off Selma's work, my work and, and other people's work. And, you know, that has really got to, got to stop because we, we can't win if we don't do that kind of uh, coming together.
You know what I mean? The, the community and the academy has to happen. I, I totally agree. And the Robeson House, we are now currently in the midst of a project to build our own room for community archives. You and you could do movement building from wherever you are. I mean, you know, that's the thing about it. You know, there was a woman in, in the campaign whose husband was an oil executive and she was down with us, right? Um, my daughter had, you know, if you read her book, she tells some of the stories about the organizer strike of scientists where hundreds of scientists from across the world went on strike following the murder of George Floyd. You got to do something, just do something, right? <laughs> As my friend, Haitian campaign appeal, Abbas, he always says, they don't call it a class struggle for nothing. But what we're not going to tolerate is when you're going to go and scab on somebody who has less power than yourself. For example, and I mentioned Haiti, you want to find out what's happening in Haiti. You want to figure out how you're going to support what's happening on the ground in Haiti. The go-to that I go to is the Haiti Action Committee, because I know the work I've been on the ground several times in Haiti with the movement. And the people, let me tell you, hey, let me say something about Haiti. Most impoverished place in the Western Hemisphere. I have never seen a group of people with such revolutionary spirit and determination as grassroots folks in Haiti. They may not know how to read and write. They may speak the Creole and people may put them down, but you know what? They know the history. And they know that they are still trying to complete their revolution from 1804. And everything that is happening with them now, they make that connection going back to the U.S., occupying Haiti 19 times, the coup in 2004. They know exactly what they're doing. They're ready to put their lives on the line for it. And they are amazing organizers. You know, last time I was down there, the movement people would say, you know, there's going to be a lot down of the capital. But everything in the morning looks perfectly normal. Cars are going around, every people are moving around and whatever. And I said, but what's happening? You know, I was down there with my assistant producer to cover it. We were the first international journalists in La Saline for the massacre there. They said, you just wait about half hour. Half hour later, streets are shut down. Tires are in the middle of the road. You know, you got to go through burning time. I mean, it is an old tactic from the Haitian revolution. They know how to gather people quickly. They know how to disperse quickly. There is a level of grassroots organizing. That's just one example, brother. Okay. So I don't do anything when it comes to Haiti without checking with the folks. And I know who those folks are. Sometimes they're invisible. I'll land at the airport and somebody will come up to me and whatnot. They know who you are. Turns out it's people from the movement. It could be a street vendor. It could be, it's like, this is the movement. They come out of nowhere. You know, lava loss means flash flood. People are like that, okay? We need to learn those tactics. We need to learn those strategies. And we can only learn it from the people and we can only learn it to be accountable. We're not going to learn it if we're going to hand pick. There are other examples when it comes to Myanmar, when it comes to Thailand, when it comes to Brazil, when it comes to Venezuela, Peru. It can be done and how to break out of this illness of nationalism and individualism 
that we are trained in this country. It is a daily work to throw it off and become what Franz Fanon says, a new human being that is created in making a movement. Thank oh you. God, you are so committed to the people. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we yes. need each other, don't we? Yes. We're out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team. I'd like to thank our sister producer, Alicia Vargas, including her editing of today's show. I'd also like to thank Black Women Radicals for allowing us to share this discussion with you. It is an honor to be recognized for my organizing work over so many decades. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for more coverage on KPFK on this your local station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening and you all please stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you.